stargazers. Thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Dara. And I'm Rad Miller. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky over the month of March in our Cosmic Diary. So when looking at faint objects, such as faraway stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and any other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark. And that way you can achieve what we call night vision. Do allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. And if you are using a star app on your phone, do switch it on the red night vision mode. On the first of the month, look for Venus, Mars and the Moon making a triangle shape in the sky just after sunset in the southwest. Now Venus has been the bright so-called evening star for the last few months, but as it approaches inferior conjunction on the 25th of March, which is where it will pass between the Earth and Sun, Venus will actually become more and more difficult for us to see and it will mark the end of its phase in the evening appearances that it has. Then on the night of the 5th, try and spot the first quarter moon beside the star Aldebaran. This is the brightest star in the constellation of Taurus. And close by you'll also see the red supergiant star Betelgeuse. Now if Aldebaran was our star, its surface would extend all the way out to the orbit of Mercury. But Betelgeuse is even bigger. If placed in our solar system, the surface of Betelgeuse would extend out to the orbits of Mars or even Jupiter. And then by the 10th of March, you'll be able to watch the waxing gibbous moon and it will be within one degree of the blue-white star Regulus. Now Regulus has the honour of being the closest star to the ecliptic and that's the apparent path that the sun makes during the year. And the ecliptic also marks the line along which the moon and the planets wander. So this is why the moon passes very close to Regulus every month and it may even sometimes occult or pass directly in front of it. You can catch a three-body spectacle around midnight on the 14th when the moon will be close to the planet Jupiter and the very bright star Spica. You'll be able to see Jupiter with just your eyes, but do grab a pair of binoculars or a telescope and have a look for its four largest moons. Io will be on one side and Europa, Ganymede and Callisto will be on the other. The sun will cross the celestial equator on the 20th of March and this will mark the vernal equinox. This is what we call the start of spring when the north pole of the earth begins to lean towards the sun again and the hours of daylight and darkness on this day are approximately the same length. And have a look for the last quarter moon beside Saturn in the southern sky in the early morning of the 20th just before sunrise. On the following Sunday, on the 26th, don't forget to turn your clocks forward one hour at 1am to mark the start of British summertime. This is a tradition that began in 1916 uh, in order to not waste the useful early morning light during summer. Now if you do take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to ROG Astronomers. Now for our cosmic news. So welcome back to our cosmic news. This is the part where me and Rad like to talk about our favourite news stories from the previous month. And we'd like you guys to listen to it and then let us know which one's your favourite. And you can tweet us which one you think is. So Rad, you're going to start us off this month. What is your favourite news story? So many good stories this month. But uh, this story grabbed me because uh, it's all about galaxies and star formation which I find very interesting topic. And also, we're talking about a very hungry, active black hole. So it's loads and loads of galaxies and what that black hole is doing to that big group of galaxies, right? a cluster of galaxies. So um, the story is all about, it focuses on a cluster called the Phoenix Cluster. And uh, this cluster is 5.7 billion light years away. 
So relatively close then? Yeah, in the local neighbourhood. No, absolutely. <laughs> I'll just give you, put that into context, right? Andromeda is our nearest big galaxy, and that's two and a half million light years away. So a WhatsApp message to Andromeda would take two and a half million years to get there. This cluster of galaxies is 5.7 billion. So 5,700 million light years away. Now, uh, as I said, there's lots of galaxies. There are 1,000 galaxies in this cluster. Um, and galaxies tend to do that. They tend to cluster together because they have gravity. Uh, in the centre of this cluster is a really massive galaxy. And this galaxy has a huge black hole in the centre, which is affecting all of the other galaxies. That in the must group. be one super, super massive <laughs> black hole. <laughs> Absolutely, and it is. And it's a very active black hole. Now, that's quite an interesting uh, concept. Uh, the Milky Way has a supermassive black hole in the core, but it's not active. It used to be active many years ago, but not anymore. It's uh, dormant. Um, but active black holes produce all kinds of things. They have accretion disks. So this is a bit like when you're in the bathtub or in the shower and you pull out the plug and all the water starts to swirl around and go down the plug hole. Okay. So if you imagine the plug hole is like a black hole and the water swirling is the accretion disk swirling around really, really fast. Sure, okay. So active black holes are... They're, they're hungry, they're eating lots of stars and gas, and you get this really big accretion disk going round and round. And it goes round so quickly that it releases X-rays and ultraviolet light. So it's very bright in that part of the electromagnetic spectrum. So we can't see that with our eyes, right? We need special telescopes to be able to detect Unless you're a bird, yes, because bird, some birds can see ultraviolet light. Yes, absolutely. So, and the other thing is, if you want to see X-rays, you need to launch that telescope into space. Um, and the other thing that they, these active black holes produce are huge, huge bipolar jets. So these are like a hose, basically, uh, of, of gas that just comes out of that accretion disk in two directions, opposite directions. Uh, and these jets are absolutely huge. They stretch out for tens of thousands of light years. Wow. And it's these jets that then interact with uh, the, ga the rest of the gas and dust in the galaxy. But not only that, because they're so huge and so powerful, they uh, affect the intervening gas in between the galaxies. So they're actually, what they're doing, they're affecting the food supply to all the other galaxies in the cluster. This is one greedy galaxy with one greedy supermassive black hole. It's, uh, yeah, it's having a proper tantrum and, uh, yeah, actually affecting all of the others. So, now, the reason why this was quite an interesting story, uh, because there are lots of these um, active galaxies with these huge black holes that have huge jets and accretion disks, you know. Um, but ordinarily, uh, when scientists see a cluster with a massive galaxy with an active black hole, uh, that black hole acts like a thermostat, and so what it does, it pushes, uh, it feeds off gas, becomes active, and then it pushes hot gas away from the galaxy. It pushes hot gas away from other galaxies, and it actually reduces the amount of star formation happening in that galaxy and in the other galaxies. So it's impeding star formation in the other galaxies. So it likes to quench starbursts, starburst formation. But in fact, what's happening in this galaxy is that, well, there's a couple of theories, but what they're noticing is that that gas is being pushed out, but behind that gas is a lot of cold gas. And so the hot gas is being pushed out, but it's cooling down uh, quite quickly. 
And in fact, it's the highest rate of cooling that's ever been observed in a massive galaxy next to one of these black holes. So this hot gas has been pushed out, it cools very, very, very quickly. And then that cold gas condenses, so it turns into liquid droplets, and then falls, it rains back down on the black hole and feeds it again. So instead of starving itself, this black hole, that get cold gas is um, falling back into that black hole and then giving it more food. So it's like a constant food supply, like a yes. conveyor belt of food. I'm still hungry, I'm still hungry, I'm still hungry. Feed me! It's, yeah, it's never ending, absolutely. Um, so that's what's happening. And ordinarily it would just push it out of the way and that's it, you know, it starts to starve itself. It's pushing gas away from other galaxies. But uh, for this particular galaxy, it's condensing back onto that's the black hole. really interesting this is yeah i mean they're they're calling it uh, hot hot plasma jets and bubbles these bubbles of gas that are coming out um so that's what's making it so exciting and scientists have never seen that before um and they've never seen a black hole that that, that you know has kind of like a feedback loop where it's you know not starving itself but continuing to feed itself with with that recycled gas uh, and that they're hoping that that will provide new insight into how supermassive black holes evolve how they grow and another big question that we have is why does almost every galaxy have a supermassive black hole in the center how did it get there did all of the supermassive black holes in these galaxies, did they all go through an active phase and then a quiescent phase where they're dormant? You know, do they, you know how long does that cycle last? You know, what, what other things does it depend on? Um, and usually, you know, like the one in the Milky Way is now starved of food. It's not active. No accretion disk, no huge jets. But uh, this one is going and it's still going. And if, I mean, if, if you ignore the raining down of gas, right, it's got enough cold gas to keep going for 30 to 40 million years. And, that, and then after that, it becomes a dormant black hole because it's eaten everything. It's eaten the buffet. It's got no more food. But because of the gas that keeps coming back down, it could keep going for, for a lot longer, longer than that. For, so it's a really, really interesting uh, story. And the fact that it's, they've never seen anything like that before. And it's really pushed the boundaries into uh, like research into the effects of supermassive black holes on clusters of galaxies and on galaxies themselves. So there you go. That's uh, wow. yeah, pretty exciting stuff. Okay, well, you've, uh, you've started off with quite a big one. Um, <laughs> you know, the nice thing about this is that you've picked a story where we, we find something new and... Um, it's something that we can use to kind of work out how things may work or how things may develop. Now, the new story I found for this month isn't necessarily we found something new, but we're on the verge of possibly being able to find something new. Okay. okay so I'm intrigued now. I'm intrigued. intrigued. Uh, so what I picked this month is a story all about finding exomoons. Finding right. habitable exomoons. Now, an exomoon, for anyone that doesn't know, is basically a moon that orbits a planet that is orbiting around a distant star. Um, so exomoons orbit around exoplanets, which are orbiting around distant stars. And it's all about, can we actually find them? Now, currently, we found thousands of exoplanets. Uh, and we've got the uh, Kepler satellite, which is NASA's satellite. It was launched in 2009. And so far, it's found over 2,300 of these exoplanets, and there are over 4,000 candidate planets, so they're still wow. yet to be confirmed. So there's a huge, huge amount of exoplanets out there. And when we compare it to our solar system, so we've got several planets in our solar system, out there we're finding thousands of exoplanets too. Well, if we look in our own solar system, we've got over 160 moons, so there must be billions of exomoons out there too, but we've not actually found one yet. Why, why is it worth looking at the moons? 
Because right. so, our moon's pretty barren. And... Our moon is, but when we look at other moons in our solar system, so the moons of Jupiter or Saturn, mm. some of those are actually thought to contain liquid water, mm. um, which is one of the main kind of uh, essential ingredients for life. So if we're trying to find uh, a habitable place, moons like Europa, uh, they're thought to have like a, a, a salty kind of ocean underneath the icy crust that they have it could actually harbor life and there are gas planets just like jupiter and saturn uh, in other solar systems yeah. so they could have moons just like uh those that's moons. really important because like the, the way that these instruments work they they're very good at finding really big planets because those big planets um are much easier to detect either by the wobble of the star or however it might be but um we shouldn't just then exclude them from our habitable world search, because as you said, you know, Jupiter's they still could have one of Jupiter's moons, them. one of Saturn's moons could be habitable. It's really exciting. Okay. So you've hit the nail on the head in the sense of, you know, um, looking for these exomoons, we haven't really found any. And previously, scientists actually thought that uh, the Kepler satellite, it's not capable of detecting uh, exomoons that we think are possibly going to be habitable. These, you know, we're finding it difficult to detect Earth-sized exomoons, let alone yeah. even smaller exomoons. So essentially they're saying that we'd probably need to wait for the next generation of satellites. Right. Um, but now they've determined that actually from planetary collisions, we could actually get a moon that's large enough forming that Kepler could detect it. Oh, wow. So there may actually be a way of using the satellite that we have now yeah. uh, to detect these exomoons. Um, and the, the best thing, I guess, that I started off looking at was the science behind this. So uh, they started off looking at our solar system. It's kind of like the way we do science. We look at what we've got and then yeah. we kind of project that onto the larger scale. So what we observe is that pretty much every single planet in our solar system, barring Mercury and Venus, which are very close to our sun, they have moons. Um, but the type of moon they have, or the size of moon they have, differs. So if we think about planets like the Earth, smaller, rockier bodies, or yeah. even Pluto, the dwarf planet, they tend to have fewer moons. But gas giant planets like Jupiter and Saturn, they tend to have many moons. And when we look at the size or the mass of these moons, for those solid planets like Earth, uh, the moon that they have is roughly one hundredth of the mass of that planet. Okay. But when we compare it to the gas giants, their moons are about one ten thousandth of the mass Teeny of that tiny. planet. Okay. So they're still relatively big moons, but in comparison to their planet, yeah. they're relatively smaller. And those relationships actually led to how scientists believe moons actually formed. Right. So when we think about solid bodies like the Earth, we think that the moons actually formed from collisions. Mm. That's one of the main theories as to how our moon formed from an object in space, almost the size of Mars, colliding into the Earth. And as that debris goes back out into space, the Earth manages to keep a piece in orbit. But when we think about moons around gas giant planets, we don't think they formed from collisions. We actually think they formed from a co-accretion of material ah, around the planet. Okay. So it's almost like uh, a mini solar system oh, wow. that's forming. So instead of the star at the centre and planets around it, we've got a gas giant planet and yeah. the moons form around it from the material that's left over. But when we use these models, we can kind of use that to look at exoplanets mm. and work out, well, if we're going to find uh, a gas planet, well, we know that the size of the moon they're going to have is mm. relatively smaller and we'd hopefully be able to work out a bit more about where we'd find them orbiting to, how many moons they're likely to have. 
But here we go. Here's the problem. Why can't Kepler detect those exomoons? Well, Kepler can only detect things that are kind of 20% the mass of the Earth. So if they're too small, there's yeah. no way on Earth Kepler's going to be able to detect how does, it. How does Kepler work? Kepler works by something called the transit method. Yeah. Um, so imagine uh, we've got the sun, you're looking at the sun, yep. and then uh, a massive object comes and blocks the light of the sun yep. as it's passing in front of it. If you were measuring the brightness of the sun, you would see a dip in its brightness as that object passes in front yep. of it. And if it's a planet, you'd expect that every so often, you're going to get a regular dip in brightness. Yeah. So if... Uh, astronomers or scientists spot these regular dips in the brightness they can infer that there is a planet going around that star and they use exactly the same method uh, of looking at a planet and then a moon possibly kind of going around that so we call it the transit method but like I said so you've got to have an object that's 20% the mass of the earth or Mm. larger for Kepler to be able to detect it yeah now if we were going to have a moon that was 20% the size of the earth our earth would need to be 20 times more massive than it is now. Okay, so to find a moon around a rocky planet like the Earth, the Earth would need to be 20 times more massive than it is. And then it would be a gas giant or something. And then it would be a gas giant because it would have enough gravity to pull the gas around it. So essentially, right now, Kepler can't detect a moon around an Earth-sized planet. Right. And thinking about gas giants as well, well, to detect a moon around a gas giant, it would need to be 10 to 15 times the mass of Jupiter. Yeah. And when you've got uh, kind of gas giants like these, we tend to find them very close to their host star. Yeah. Now, the reason that Mercury and Venus don't have any moons is because they're very close to their host star. And it's likely that if Mercury or Venus had moons, the sun's gravity would be enough to pull them in or to tear them apart. So either way, if we're looking at solid bodies like Earth-like planets... Yeah. We're not going to find moons that are big enough to detect. No. And if we look at gas giants, well, yeah. we find them very close to their star. It's unlikely And the moons get find. torn apart into bits and falling to the star. Yeah. Oh, dilemma. So it's problem after problem. But um, it was Dr. Amy Barr from Brown University in Rhode Island in the United States. Um, she actually reviewed the hypothesis for the different ways that we think moons form. Mm. Um, and initially, she was one of the first people that said, you know, we're going to have to wait until we get the next generation of satellites to be able to detect these X moons but she has carried on her research she's now a senior research scientist at the planetary science institute and she's working with a colleague uh, a physicist called megan brooke sile from lawrence livermore uh, national laboratory in california Uh, and they've used models that aren't based on our solar system so instead of looking at our solar system and trying to replicate it out there in the universe they've come up with something totally different a theoretical model something that's not based on what we see and they basically found that there are three factors that can affect how a moon might form from collision. Yeah. So we know from uh, previously that the mass of an object colliding into a planet and the impact angle of that object will affect how big a moon will be created from that impact. Right. But the one thing they didn't look at was the impact velocity. How fast and Ah. the direction from which this solid object was going to crash into a planet and then cause a moon to be formed. And so they kind of played like a bit of a... Let's change the factors and let's see what works. Let's yeah. constantly kind of test these different things. And they adjusted those variables and they found that if you get a collision between two similar sized objects, yeah. and they're kind of between two to seven times the mass of the Earth, so quite large objects, they come in at a very shallow angle. So not yeah. at 90 degrees, but a very shallow angle. Yeah. And they come in at a velocity that's very similar to the escape speed for that planet then you'll actually be able to find or form a moon that is large enough for Kepler to detect. 
Right. So the best thing I think about this story is it's the same scientist who did this a couple of years ago. So in 2014, she ruled out that Kepler would ever be able to find an exomoon. But instead of just focusing on what we see in our solar system, well, maybe our solar system could be the exception. Maybe there are other things that we think of. So in kind of conclusion to this, um, it was thought, like I said, Kepler wouldn't be able to find any exomoons. We'd have to wait for more kind of technological advancements. Um, But if we do now find an exomoon, well, we're going to be able to work out pretty much how it formed. We've got an idea of the mass, the angle it comes in at, the escape Mm. velocity or the speed it comes in at. Um, That will all help to work out how these moons are formed. So it's quite a nice story in terms of that. And I think we're kind of on the verge now. We've, you know, we've been searching for exoplanets for the past 20 years. And yeah. I think the next step now is, you know, we, someone wants to be the first person to find that potentially habitable exomoon. Mm. That's, that's amazing. And it's using maths and Newton's laws of motion um, and energy and conservation of momentum to, to, to get an idea of how a moon might form and, and lots of computer simulations. That's really, really interesting. It's almost like a game, isn't it? It like feels this. like a bit of a game. Yeah. And just to kind of finish us off, kind of a, a bit of a downer, really. Even if we find an exomoon, yeah. it's unlikely that it might be habitable. No. I know. So if we think about the Earth, the Earth is large enough to have a protective magnetic field around mm. it. An exomoon is never going to be as large as the Earth to be able to do that. Mm. But if it's around a planet or an exoplanet that does have a magnetic field, well, it could shield it. Okay. But here's the problem. So for a moon to be in the habitable zone of a star, now the habitable zone is basically uh, the kind of distance from the star where you're likely to find liquid water, to find the right temperature for liquid water. Now, if we're going to find a moon in that habitable zone, uh, it's going to be unprotected. It's going to be too close to the star for even the planet, the exoplanet that it's orbiting around for its magnetic field to shield it. But if it's found outside the habitable zone, then yeah, that planet's, the exoplanet's magnetic field might be able to shield it. So it's one or the other. We're either going to find an exomoon in the habitable zone. But once you're outside of the habitable zone, of course, you're talking about frozen worlds. Sure. And you're talking about frozen dead moons. Or, or are we? You know, like you mentioned Europa and of course you've got Enceladus around Saturn and they are in past the snow line they're in the freezer compartment of the solar system but why do we think they might they might have water and life so this is an it's all about the composition it's not pure liquid water that we're looking yeah. at those oceans are thought to exist because they have uh, different salts in them things like ammonia which act as antifreeze and also you've got like i guess you've got heating from i mean these moons are orbiting very close to their host planet and so we get this stretching and squeezing Um, of the surface of the moon which we call actually tidal heating geologists call it tidal heating so yeah there's all these factors as you said like so many variables that we need to take into account uh, when we're thinking about whether a place could could harbor life exactly okay well there's our news stories for this month uh crazy active supermassive black holes black holes at the center of clusters or a cluster of galaxies or habitable exomoons and the possibility of whether we could find them so i hope you guys enjoyed listening to our cosmic diary and our cosmic news Uh, and that's it for us for this month but please do listen out for our next podcast next month so it's bye from me we'll see you next month bye